Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 125 bienvenidos bitches buiti binafi and thank you so much for listening <laughs> fruit loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about contrary to popular belief not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes what? no they're not there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and fruit loops is a podcast all about them we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Mark Garfield Moore, a Toronto rapper who killed four people, possibly just for clout. No, not for clout. For oh, no. clout. <laughs> oh, no. This subject was suggested to us by our fruity Nakia. Hey, thanks, boo. Um... Serial killers and the three names. Mark Garfield Moore. Hmm. There it is. 
There it is. Uh, if you had three names on your serial killer bingo card, please mark it off. Next section. Uh, before we get into talking about Mark Garfield more, uh, how you doing? I'm doing good. So uh, it's been kind of crazy this week with work, but uh, other than yep. that, nothing interesting going on in my life. How about you? Well, uh, I'm doing good as we record. It is Gemini season. <laughs> Sun's out, bun's out. Uh, <laughs> trying not to get into too much trouble. Uh, and this is my favorite time of year because it's my birthday. Plus, it's Juneteenth. All the bitches need to get out of my motherfucking way <laughs> because I am out here to have a good time. So, uh, and you know what? Happy birthday to me. Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, glad everybody's doing all right. Let's get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Mm -hmm. They came in hot a little bit today, but they that's did. okay. That's okay. <laughs> that's all right. So we got a Facebook post from Bailey who said, after listening to the re-aired podcast this week, I felt like it was necessary to weigh in. Mm. Our ladies had a message from one of my fellow Canadians suggesting an episode about our uh, piece of shit number first minister. <laughs> yep. 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 <laughs> Canada is often shown as the nicer part of North America, but we got our issues. Yeah. This week mm -hmm. there was the murder of an Islamic family who were just out for a walk. Yeah, that was tough. Yeah. The same week, 215 indigenous children were found buried at an old residential school. Yeah. I guess what? By now it's up to 500. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, Bailey said, my hometown is home to one that didn't close until the 1990s. No. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah. And we've been away for a little bit and we got a lot of emails during this time about the indigenous children mm -hmm. um, being found. And uh, yeah, it's very, very upsetting. Very much so. Um, but uh, I... I I have a couple um, calls to action because it can be so infuriating that you're like, what the fuck are we supposed to do? So yeah, stay tuned. Yeah. So Bailey continues, as a country, we still have reserves that lack human necessities, such as clean water and power. Mm. Indigenous peoples are overrepresented in our penal systems and women are missing and murdered and ignored. Mm -hmm. Despite the Truth and Reconciliation Council having been formed and concluded, promises are not kept. Mm -hmm. White supremacy is on the rise, mm. uh, as it is in America. It's awful. Canada yeah. is also struggling with an open opioid crisis, lack of affordable housing, and an influx of homelessness. The list goes on and on. Yeah. The systemic oppression and abuses of power with no repercussions just get worse. Mm. As a social service worker who is now in school for my BA, I'm exhausted by the fight and the ignorance I am surrounded by. I've stopped watching the news. I hear you, girl. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> or reading the comment sections to just be waterboarded by vitriol. Mm. And that's that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I have privilege as a white woman and I do my best to practice intersectionality to not be colorblind and to be culturally competent. Just thought y'all might understand the struggle. And uh, yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. It's a really tough um 
set of just truths and um it's a lot uh, it's a lot it is a lot being thrown in our way and here we are trying to be like good people and be aware of all of the fuckery that's going on and so that we can you know do something about it or be there for you know like I had a, a friend who was um she's Muslim and she was devastated by the family that was just out for a walk she's Muslim yeah. and she lives in Canada um and so I mean it's just a lot whether your community is going through it or you care about somebody whose community is going through it and yeah, yeah we just we hear you yeah so um but guess what thank you for reaching out to us yeah thank you <laughs> I feel like that's inappropriate after all that but I don't know what else to do <laughs> I also wanted to say thank you to Takira T, CVH 1983, and Ro and SF for your five-star reviews. What? Yay, thank you for your reviews. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yes. Okay, so we got a message on IG, Instagram by Lindsay B. And it says, hi, love your show. I was just listening to episode 114 about Lulanda Flett. I'm glad you took time to mention the residential schools and the massive horrendous impact they had on indigenous peoples of Canada. Uh, Recently, I don't know if you heard, yes, we did, about the mass (laughs) graves of indigenous children that were found at uh, Kamloops Residential School on British Columbia. It's fucking horrendous. Could not agree with you more, sis. Uh, Sir John A. Macdonald is seen as a founding father of Canada, but he was probably the biggest white asshole serial killer of our country. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, I, I am going to have to say that these we need you want to keep calling these dudes founding fathers, but uh, I can think of so many more appropriate words. And I'm going to say white asshole serial killer of our country. <laughs> I like that's, it. That's a good one. Uh, yeah. yeah, let's put it in the suggestion box. Um, <laughs> so maybe not serial killer, but in but indirectly mass murdered thousands of Indigenous Canadians through the implementation of these residential schools and the Indian Act. Thanks, guys, for outing the colonizers. You are awesome. Uh, I want to say thank you to... Thank you so much, uh, Lindsay B, for um, your message. Like I said, like Beth said, we got a lot of these um, and it was it's just been frustrating. Like, yeah, it's devastating. But what do we do? So I took to uh, Indigenous TikTok, which is a place I like to go to TikTok to um, be with the people (laughs) and also learn like, oh, my God, I can't. There's a whole African-American deaf community on TikTok. Anyway, um, go to Indigenous TikTok and. Um, one of the, the calls to action has been to cancel Canada Day celebrations because it's a, it's celebrating um, colonization and indigenous genocide. Um, if you if you are in Canada, push for the government to search all of the residential school grounds. Y'all, they kept records. They have the information um, of, of, of the schools and, and search for um, all of the uh, bodies, seek justice and accountability. And while this is all, um, it, it's good that the truth is in the light, right? But it is also a lot. So yeah. remember to take care of yourselves, right? And yeah. Um, uh, just take a break if you need to from yeah, the news. Yeah, as... if, if it's getting to be too much, take a break from the news. Oh yeah, we'll be we'll be here when you get back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank y'all. Thank you. Uh... <laughs> For the messages, we got some new supporters on Podbean, Kofi, and Patreon. Uh, Felix H., 
Haley H and Andy A. And here are your tunes. My hopes are that you like them, but if you hate them, I don't think I can do anything about that. So deal with it. <laughs> so here we go, Felix. He's got electric boots, a mohair suit. You know he bought me and Beth a coffee. Ho ho. <laughs> for, for, for Felix is the best. <laughs> Felix. 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 Felix is the best. Yeah. <laughs> That was for you, Felix. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for your handsome Kofi donation. Um, We really appreciate it. Uh, Okay, this is for Andy. Andy with fruit loops for life. Let's make it last forever. Andy, ride or die till death do us part. Let's make it last forever. (laughs) And this last one is for Haley. Podcasters say, Haley, you're a fine, you're a fine girl. What a patron you would be. Such a patron. But my life, my lover, my lady is deceased. (laughs) And thank you so much Haley all you all we could not do this show without you and we are just so so grateful so now we're going to take a quick break we're going to get into the story when we come back the truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up but not anymore I know you know what happened they went into houses and killed women and children what are you thinking what a mess U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood and at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. So we're back. Beth, remind us who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Mark Garfield Moore, an aspiring Toronto rapper who committed four killings in 75 days Mm. between September and November of 2010. Most of the victims were just random strangers. Wow, that's terrible. Um, So now we're going to get into the stats. All right. The victims, rest in power, y'all, were Jameel Spence, 27, Mike James, 23, Courtney Facey, 18, Carl Cole, 45. And additionally, Kevin Williams was a witness who testified at uh, Moore's trial, who was beaten severely by Moore when they placed him in the same cell. 
as the guy he was testifying against. So not uh, smart. Not smart. Um, you know, I'm getting the sense that Canada really has a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> uh, so I was just gonna just sh- shout off a couple like stats on Toronto. Uh, I learned from Handmaid's Tale. It's not Toronto. It's Toronto. Toronto. Okay. Toronto. Yes, is the fourth largest city in North America. It's the largest city in Canada. Uh, the homicide rate in the 2000s was between 2.1 and 3.8 per 100,000 people, which is lower than Atlanta or Chicago um, in the states for reference. And in 2010, uh, I saw that there were 63 murders that year, which includes the uh the four that yeah. uh more was responsible for uh let's just get into the setting take us there right. Beth. the setting is toronto canada which is located in the north shore of lake ontario and is the largest of canada's urban centers it's the capital of the province of ontario and the hub of the nation's commercial financial industrial and cultural life yeah toronto is one of north america's most diverse cities which is fucking dope yeah yeah um so people have lived in toronto and in the Toronto area since shortly after the last Ice Age, uh, Iroquian societies developed about 1,100 years ago in the lower Great Lakes. As they increasingly relied on farming, semi-permanent villages emerged around the area. I'm sorry, that word emerge looks like Ermagerd. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh my God. I know you've sent me memes with that. I'm sorry. It cracks me up. In 1534, a French sailor named Jacques Cartier journeyed up the St. Lawrence River as far as what is now Montreal. Cartier's journey was the first well-documented record of European activity on the edge of the Great Lakes region. However, by that time, some of the native people had already encountered white people. Mm. They had traded furs for foreign goods and had pelts stored for future contacts. We know where this is going. By the late 16th century, yeah, it's not good. Uh, By the late 16th century, some goods from all the way across the Atlantic had reached the native population of southern Ontario. These items were not carried by the Europeans, but had arrived with indigenous traders who obtained them farther east, either directly from Europeans or from other native people. In 1608, the first successful permanent European settlement began on the St. Lawrence River when Samuel de Champlain founded Quebec as part of his efforts to expand French trading. In 1793, British colonial officials founded the town of York on what was then the Upper Canadian Frontier. That backwoods village grew to become the city of Toronto in 1834. Whoa! Wait, Quebec, uh, that's where they speak French. Yes. Okay. Yes. And Celine, my name is Celine. I am the best singer in the world. I am the best singer. (laughs) Rene, my husband, Rene. So throughout the 19th and early early 20th century, Black Americans migrated to Canada to escape slavery and segregation, while Black Canadians came from rural Canada seeking opportunity in the city. Those early families have been joined over the years by immigrants from places like Jamaica, Somalia, Ghana, and Nigeria. Britain banned the institution of slavery in present-day Canada and British colonies in 1833, 
though the practice of slavery in Canada had effectively ended already early in the 19th century through case law due to court decisions resulting from litigation on behalf of enslaved people, rendering slavery unenforceable in both Lower Canada and Nova Scotia. Yeah, uh, they they got rid of it earlier, y'all. It doesn't mean yeah. they didn't have it at all and still right. aren't responsible for terrible racism. <laughs> Since slavery in the United States continued until 1863, 1865, if we're celebrating Juneteenth, hello, right, right. Uh, black people free and enslaved began immigrating to Canada from the United States, many by way of the Underground Railroad. However, it was extremely difficult for black workers to find employment in Toronto in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Many jobs were controlled by unions or trade associations that excluded black people. This forced them into the lowest paid, lowest status and often most dangerous jobs. The downtown Toronto area, now called the Discovery District, was once a thriving black community known as the Ward which served as a landing spot for American refugees fleeing slavery. Once settled in the neighborhood, residents built businesses and established numerous churches. According to Natasha Henry, the head of the Ontario Black History Society, quote, they exercised their right to vote. They were politically active. When racism reared its head, they spoke out about it. They wrote letters. They wrote petitions, end quote. The community also rallied behind Albert Jackson, the city's first black mail carrier, when his white colleagues refused to train him. Come on, y'all. Come on, (laughs) y'all. We can't stand for this. This hurts everybody. Y'all, you see how this how this zero sum game thing just doesn't work. (laughs) Eventually, the city forced residents out of the neighborhood and raised many of the buildings to make way for hospitals and government structures, such as the new city hall. The ward has since been largely forgotten. In recent years, though, the city's heritage department has started putting up plaques to commemorate Toronto's black history. But those who want to learn about that history often have to seek it out. I think that is unfortunately true of any history that's not part of white history. White history, history yeah. Even countries like Canada that seem so friendly. Um, Ontario's Ministry of Education doesn't include any black history in its curriculum, instead leaving it up to individual teachers to choose what to teach. The problem with leaving it up to the individual teachers to choose whether to teach black history is that they can also choose not to. Natasha Henry has said, quote, this is not an indictment to say that it's being done maliciously, because oftentimes a lot of teachers have gone through the same system, not learning it. And so it's kind of like this reproduction of this ignorance, unquote. Yeah. And in 1910, the government of Canada implemented a new immigration act that barred immigrants into Canada from races deemed no, they didn't, quote, undesirable, end quote. And very few black people entered Canada during the next few decades. That's garbage. Yeah. Oh, my God, Canada, we see you. <laughs> Your racism is showing. God. <laughs> Following the outbreak of the First World War, hundreds of black men wanted to enlist, but were turned away due to discrimination at their recruiting stations. On July 5th, 1916, Number 2 Construction Battalion, a segregated non-combatant unit, was eventually authorized. The unit was employed primarily repairing roads and in the production of timber for use by the Allied armies. Members of the unit hoped to be able to take part in combat, but only a few eventually did. And they were so eager to fight, right? Yeah, uh, because yeah. they, in their minds, this will be the one. If we fight in this one, if we participate in this one, we'll finally get get citizenship 
Right. right. Even so, some were injured and some killed by artillery fire, poison gas and construction accidents. During the Second World War, Black Canadians were allowed to perform frontline combat duties and the units in the Canadian Army were not segregated. Progress. Yeah. The Black population in the greater Toronto area remained relatively low until the 1950s when the city's Black population grew to 10,000. In 1955, the West Indian domestic scheme permitted single women aged 18 to 35 and in good health to work in Canada as domestics. Oh, nice. Thanks. For one year before granted immigration status. Over 2,600 women were admitted under this scheme. And was it really, was it called a scheme? That's what it was called, the West Indian Domestic Scheme. Golly. Uh, Does it, does it come up, WIDS? I was going to say a cool acronym, WIDS. Maybe that's why they gave it a WIDS. WIDS. I'm in the WIDS program. Uh, So in 1967, the government of Canada dropped the racially discriminatory immigration system. Okay. After which black immigration rose dramatically. Then that makes sense in the 60s, 1960s. Approximately 40,000 black people lived in Toronto. Within this population, there were over 600 teachers, 500 nurses, and 75 doctors. The population consisted of three main groups, Ontario-born Black Canadians, Caribbean immigrants, and Black Nova Scotians. In 1967, leaders of the Ontario-born Black Canadians merged their celebration of Emancipation Day with the traditions of Trinidad and Tobago Carnival to establish Carabana. Big ups to big ups to Carabana. Um, I just uh, sorry, my Caribbean moods are just yeah, spilling out of me right now. Got, I'm sorry, God, I'm really excited, got very excited. <laughs> also, uh, don't fact check me on this, but I'm pretty sure Black Nova Scotians invented hockey, not white people in Canada. <laughs> I'm serious. Look it up. Okay. Uh, don't fact check me, but I think you listening should go look it up. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to look it up directly after we record this. Seriously, do it. Uh, bla- look up Black Nova Scotians inventing hockey. Uh, so Carabana, known as the Toronto Caribbean Carnival uh, since 2011, has run annually since 1967. I don't know if y'all have been to a Caribbean Carnival, but it, ooh, I love to go every year. I always find a cousin somewhere. Uh, it's just just, it's so much fun. It was, but Phoenix has probably got nothing on Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as I was Toronto. reading about this, I was like, uh, I think I need to book a trip yeah, to Toronto. Yeah, no, ours is, is like, uh, <laughs> uh, so it, 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 this one in uh, Toronto was first performed as a gift from Canada's Caribbean community as a tribute to Canada's centennial. The carnival is now the largest event of its kind in in North America, over one million participants annually. Hello, somebody. <laughs> oh, man. The festival is highlighted by a street parade traditionally held on the first weekend in August in commemoration of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. The carnival consists of costume dancers and live Caribbean music. Work on the costumes takes a year to complete, mm-hmm. beginning soon after the previous year's celebration. Yep. That wow. sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, in the 1980s, and um, I'm just like picturing how awesome. Can we get a flight there now, please? <laughs> so, in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a large influx of East African refugees that moved to the city from Somalia, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. More recently, Black immigrants from the Greater Toronto area have come largely from West Africa. As of 2016, about 442,000 Black Canadians resided in Toronto's metropolitan area. Area, and Black Canadians represent about 9% of the city's residents. What's up, Drake? 
<laughs> Black people live in clusters mainly outside of the core of Toronto and very few downtown. Community activist and writer Desmond Cole says the map clearly demonstrates the city has a segregation problem when it comes to where Blacks live. Yeah, and that's true throughout colonized nations or communities. Right. Is that these cities, some of these cities like Toronto and Chicago and Houston are so diverse, but they uh, super diverse also means super segregated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the map shows that Black people predominantly live in the western, you know, old city of York portion of the city, as well as the northwestern corners, including Etobicoke, North York, and Scarborough to the east. Canada has had hip-hop artists right from the early days of the scene. But even if a Canadian hip-hop artist could get signed to a record label, it was very difficult for them to get widespread exposure. Music critics and journalists have sometimes attributed this to Canadian stereotypes getting in the way of Canadian rappers being taken seriously. Oh, yeah. I mean... People so Drake is the most famous, the most famous one, right? And right. It's, but it's not. It, the people don't think he's soft just because he's from Canada. There's a colorism aspect to his softness because he's light skinned. So people think people the the stereotype. What a is, nice Canadian man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how could he be hard, right? How right, could he right. be? How could he have any street cred? Um, there was a, a, a while ago, a couple years ago, <laughs> there was a be- rap beat between Drake, Light Skin Drake, and Dark Skin Pusha T. Two different generations of rappers. Uh, one's Canadian, one's American. And they went in on each other in, in, in a musical way. And Pusha T, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at this because my son, my son kind of reminds me of Drake and how he looks. But uh, he, Pusha T cr- was critical of Drake saying he's so light skinned that his hair doesn't even afro up. That's why he can't, his hair, that's why he, his hair like, doesn't even he, afro he, His up. hair won't, won't even afro puff. That's why he can't g- grow a full flat top or a full afro. I mean, just, just criticizing silly. him. Yeah, yeah, it was very silly. But anyway, um, so yeah, street cred, because uh, Canadians are soft. But many Canadian rap artists, artists couldn't get their records into stores or played on the radio. Canada's propensity to create quality artists who rarely achieved public recognition prompted All Music, an American online music database, to state that Canadian hip-hop is the, quote, best-kept secret in hip-hop. Six, 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 six. I had no idea. Great reference. <laughs> okay. It was not until 2008 when Cardinal Official, with a collaboration with American artist Akon, Dangerous, reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100 chart that a Canadian rapper had a major chart hit in the United States. He was shortly followed by Drake, whose 2009 single, Best I Ever Had, reached number two on the Hot 100. Toronto-based artist Drake has since dominated the Canadian hip-hop scene. Yeah, he just won, like, a, a Artist of the Decade Award. Wow. Um, I, yeah, I mean, Drake <laughs> Drake is Drake. And by the way, uh, I was looking at our analytics, <laughs> and our listeners, Fruit Loops Pod listeners, listen to Beyonce and Drake. Wow. <laughs> they are fans. So okay. um, do you remember where you were when you heard Best I Ever Had, Beth? I don't even know it. <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay. 
<laughs> Probably if I heard it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that one. But oh, uh, okay. yeah, I don't I don't really listen to that. Oh, you know why else people say Drake? Is it hard? <laughs> he was in that Canadian TV show Degrassi. Where he played? Oh, was he really? He played. Yeah, I he didn't played. Know that. I never watched it, but he played the dude who was in the wheelchair. <laughs> so, I should should not have laughed so hard. No, it's okay. It's just, I mean, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty one, right? Right. They right. probably probably you know would have cast somebody who actually had a physical disability in in the part or whatever. But uh, yeah, he he was in that show, so. Uh, he's like a Mickey Mouse Club kind of guy too, which right. is hard to, yeah. hard to. Where is the gangster? Like Justin in that? Timberlake. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Timberlake—that's a whole appropriation conversation. We don't. Right. We, I'm we just saying it. he was actually in the Mickey Mouse Club. Is what oh, I'm saying. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yes. You are right. Ding. 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 So, um, according to a 2017 Vice article, quote: "The roots of Toronto rap lie in reggae and other Caribbean musical genres." End quote. Thank you for giving credit where credit is due and quote Toronto's hip hop has a distinct enough approach and sonic character that it had a sizable influence on even the unreachable realm of America end quote From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Well, that was a fascinating setting segment. Yeah. Now we're going to get into the early life of Mark uh, G. Moore. Well, Mark Moore and his three brothers, Andre, Jerome, and Timon, were brought up in the Toronto neighborhood Lawrence Heights in Toronto's West End by their mom, Hyacinth Moore. Lawrence Heights is sometimes referred to as the jungle. Oh, boy, I can only imagine why. (laughs) Um, So as far as we know, Mark's father was not a part of his life. In 2001, when he was just 17, Mark was shot in the face with an AK-47 in a stairwell of his family's Weston Road high-rise apartment building in the city's West End after opening the door to two strangers. This left him with a misshapen lower jaw. 
probably affected how he rapped too, his sound. Yeah, yeah. Some people were making fun of him. Um, I, I hadn't really heard him rap, so. Yeah, same. So uh, I don't really know, but I, I think it's shitty that they were making fun of him. How yeah. he, yeah, because can't help it. Well, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Mark's older brother, Andre, was a crack dealer, also known as Tweety, affiliated with the West End Bloods. He had been the only suspect in the 2001 shooting and wounding of a Toronto cop, Antonio Macias, but was never charged, though he was found in possession of the weapon used a couple months later. Andre was then shot and killed in 2008. So this is a lot of violence already, yeah. like, early on. Early, yeah. In in 2009, Mark's brother, Timon, was 16 at the time, survived being shot in the stomach outside of high school. The same year, another Moore brother, Jerome, was convicted of stealing a car from a dealership and crashing it into a police cruiser. And he served Yikes. time, yeah, <laughs> for carjacking. Now, by 2010, Mark Moore had more than 25 criminal convictions, including robbery, drug and firearms-related offenses, as well as several for failing to comply with court orders. And I just got to say, welcome to Culture Corner. All of these criminal convictions, robbery, drug, and firearms related, I know that he killed for clout, but I don't believe that based on what we know about the things in his early life we just mentioned, that these were things he did for clout. I think these are more receipts for survival. If right. you ask me. So right. that's it. At the 2011 trial for Andre Moore's murder, the accused, Kenya Smith, testified that he was terrified of the crazy man, Andre, and his brother. Um, but I don't know which brother he was talking about. Okay. He also said that Andre Moore had driven him from his drug selling turf in Scarborough and even tried to shoot him, but oh. missed. The jury found Smith had shot Andre Moore in self defense and acquitted him. Okay, so Mark aspired to be a rap artist. According to an article in the Toronto Star, in the lyrics of his debut album, Election Year, the aspiring rap artist, quote, slanged nihilism in his music videos and boasted of street justice, end quote. Uh, so now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. Kevin Williams, a friend of Moore's brother, Andre, was a mildly successful rap artist performing as Mayhem Moriarty. And I have to say, I like that name. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. Want to borrow it? That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just call me Mayhem Moriarty from now on. <laughs> okay, fine. You got it. Hit it, Mayhem. <laughs> he appeared on mixtapes with famous rap artists like Drake. Wow. Yeah. That's that's making it That's now. big time. Yeah. yeah. In 2011, he was part of a showcase during Canadian Music Week at a Toronto nightclub. During that spot, Mark Moore shot up the ceiling of the club. Oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> Why do brothers do this? Um, sh shot the club up. You know, um, shooting the club up is another uh, way we uh, refer to getting pregnant. <laughs> No, <laughs> when Shaking the club, up. when uh, yeah, like oh no, I'm pregnant. Uh, my 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 man shot the club up, <laughs> uh, but not in it's different different context. Anyway, after Andre's death, Williams and Mo Mark Moore developed a a tight friendship. Moore called himself Presidente or Prezi, and he told Williams that Prezi was no mere poser, but one who speaks what he lives. And one of the, quote, realest out there, real run trail one, and uh, one whose, quote, name shakes the streets. Wow. End quote. Na 
name shakes the streets. That is okay, intense. <laughs> yes, very, very wow. On August 5th, 2010, Moore shot and wounded a man in the Green Bray area in Scarborough. The man later testified during Moore's robbery trial that a friend of his had had a fist fight with Moore's younger brother. Four days later, Moore drove up to the man and said, quote, what happened to my brother, unquote, before shooting him? Oh, he didn't let him answer the question. Yeah, just shot him. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so then on August 9th, 2010, Moore Williams and Williams' girlfriend, Sarah Patsula, robbed the Arex jewelry store in Midtown Toronto. Surveillance footage captured during the robbery shows a black Audi driven by Patsula parking at the back of the Arex jewelers at 5.48 p.m. Two masked men, Moore and Williams, jumped out of the car. Both were armed. The goldsmith had been taking a break and was having a cigarette against the door. As Moore ran towards him, the goldsmith tried to shut the door. Moore fired a shot. The bullet ricocheted. I just love the word ricochet. I'm sorry. I'm going to say that again. The bullet ricocheted off the door, went through the goldsmith's arm, and lodged in his leg. Moore followed the wounded man inside, dragging another employee who had been taken taking out the garbage along with him. In three minutes and 16 seconds, Moore and Williams took more than 200 pieces of jewelry worth $500,000 before making their getaway in that black Audi that Sarah Patsula was driving. Wow. The goldsmith survived but suffered psychological trauma. His co-worker, while not shot, suffered even more significant trauma. Quote, I no longer have patience with my co-workers, the jeweler later said in his victim impact statement. Ah, that's, that is uh, too bad. Quote, I'm always on edge. I suffer from post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and it is still to this day very difficult to come to work without thinking about that day. And he goes on to say, I have lost all confidence in people and worry that anyone can be a possible threat to me and the store, end quote. Understandable. A hundred percent. On September 10th, 2010, Jamil Spence, 27, father of two young children, was at his mother-in-law's Scarborough townhouse. He was attending a family party celebrating his son starting kindergarten when he decided to run out to the convenience store down the street to buy some iced tea. As he was walking back from the convenience store, he was shot dead in the laneway behind his mother-in-law's townhouse. Jamil was shot eight times, uh, including three fatal wounds, two to the head and one to the chest. Police found 15 shell casings at the scene, which, why? That's, That's so a lot. excessive. Yeah. yeah. After the murder, Moore sent a text to Williams saying he was, quote, terrorizing the boroughs, unquote, and that Williams should watch the news. Hyacinth Moore Mark's mother allegedly assisted her son in destroying evidence from the killing of Jamil Spence. Um, I think that that um, is an interesting, like aspect. nobody aspect of the case, right? Is the mother helping? Because right. what's the alter? I mean, what's what would you do? I don't know. I really I don't, don't know, know what I would yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, so on September 29th, 2010, which happened to be Kevin Williams's birthday, Moore was driving around in his black BMW with Williams in the back seat. Oh, so he was like a chauffeur. Uh, <laughs> and they had just finished off some Hennessy. Ooh, that dark liquor makes you do very dark things. And we're looking for an open liquor store. At the same time, friends Courtney Facey and Mike James were minding their own damn business leaning up, up leaning up against their car parked in an alleyway listening to music 
Moore drove by, saw the young man, flipped a U-turn so that the driver's side was facing them, rolled down his window, and began shooting. Facey was shot in the head. James was shot in the torso and stumbled to a store where he collapsed. According to later testimony by Kevin Williams, Williams began laughing hysterically. Whoa. Nice. Nice guy. Whoa. Okay. So, um... Uh, Williams is in jail now, too, right? I mean, <laughs> well, uh, we'll get to it. We'll get okay. To it. Uh, so police retrieved 10 spent shell casings from that scene, which was across the street from the high rise where Moore had been shot in the face when he was 17. Wow. Full circle moment. Yeah. In November of 2010, Carl Cole, 45, was working as a driver for a physiotherapy clinic when he received nine phone calls from Moore's cell number. And my understanding is this was over several days. Okay. Prior to this, he had never received one call from him. And we don't know why Moore was calling him or what the two discussed on those phone calls. Okay. Uh, but on November 24th, 2010, Carl Cole was shot 29, 29, 29 oh my times full in the parking lot of a building directly across from an apartment complex where Moore had been shot in the face by an AK-47 almost a decade earlier. Um, did he do this just for a rap song? At the scene, police collected 12 shell casings from a 9mm gun and 10 from a 45. You see what I'm saying? Like how this yeah. could be used in a, the narrative of a song? Right. Yeah, uh, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> Days after Cole was shot dead in a text message, Moore bragged that he, quote, got that dude that robbed us, unquote. He also allegedly told a friend that he shot someone, quote, in the melon with a 45, unquote. In the melon with the 45. See, these are all lyrics is what I'm seeing here. Right, right. Uh, so now we're going to get into the investigation and the rest. Uh, what do you got, Beth? Police launched Project Summit, an investigation into the four murders of Spence, Facey, James, and Carl Cole, which were linked by ballistics. The same 9mm was used in all four crimes and was later recovered in an unrelated raid. The 45, which was used on Cole, was never recovered. On Monday, October 3rd, 2011, police charged Williams and his girlfriend, Sarah, in the Eric's Jewelry Store robbery. The charges were laid a day after officers found a portion of the store stolen jewelry through a series of search warrants. Williams was notified of the charges while he was already in jail at the Maplehurst Correctional Facility for unrelated gun charges. Oh! Police had not yet identified more in the robbery. After Williams was questioned for about 45 minutes, he spilled the beans. Uh-oh. <laughs> he so... agreed to cooperate with police. What do they call that? Sing like a canary? Yeah, he sang okay. like a canary. <laughs> tweet, tweet. <laughs> so police executed a search warrant at Hyacinth Moore's apartment on McCowan Road as part of, quote, Project Summit. Ms. Moore later told reporters that the half dozen cops who, quote, destroyed her apartment, end quote, uh, had left behind a loaded shotgun. Wait, reporters? Uh, which she photographed lying on Mark's bed. That is a stretch, <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> Quote, never seen it before, unquote, she claimed. Hyacinth called 911 asking, quote, you forget something, unquote. Well, 
Police said they looked into Hyacinth Moore's claim about the shotgun left behind and ruled the 911 call was actually made while the police were still searching the apartment for firearms. (laughs) Wow. The lengths a mother will go, right? (laughs) The Um, audacity. (laughs) To protect her. Wow. So on October 19th, 2011, Mark Moore was charged with four counts of first degree murder. At the time, Hyacinth Moore was sitting in the courtroom at Kenya Smith's trial for killing her oldest son. Andre. Moore was already in jail on the robbery charges. Man, that mother's really been through the system yeah. with, her, with her kids. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. I keep saying that. It's this whole I don't, story I, is I a mean, lot. For lack, I mean, also, this really should be like a movie. Fuck the Italian job. Uh, this is way more interesting. About a week after Mark Moore's arrest, 49-year-old Hyacinth Moore was arrested and charged with accessory after the fact. Obstruction of a peace officer, conspiracy to commit an indictable offense, an accessory after the fact to murder. It was alleged that she helped her son destroy evidence. While Moore was in jail, police told the press that they were seeking a blue Honda Civic in relation to the killings. Moore's girlfriend, Tassandra White, owned a bluish-green Honda Civic, which he had been pulled over in while driving it in 2010. Both the Honda Civic and a black BMW X5 were registered in White's name, but actually were owned by Moore. Police knew this, and they released that information about the Honda Civic to the press in order to rattle more in an attempt to get him to talk on the prison phones. And it worked. In a 56-day period, Moore made 7,500 phone calls. Wow. And that couldn't have been cheap, right? All of those. Yeah. And that's part of the the joys of the criminal justice system. Well, maybe in Canada it's different. but It might be different in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. United States, that, no way anybody could make that many phone calls yeah because when you you call somebody from prison it's like collect is that yeah 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 it's expense it's expense you have to pay to call you have to pay to send emails you have to pay to send letters like it's It's, just it is very expensive yeah very expensive um so more uh directed white to get the honda painted black Wow. And to is, go to Midas? What is it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mako. Go to Mako and paint it black. And the, uh, to change the color details with the Ministry of Transportation, a conversation that was picked up by Wiretap. Moore grew increasingly desperate about the necessity of formally altering that color detail, telling his girlfriend, quote, this is my life on the line, end quote. Forget about the other people I killed. <laughs> yeah. Fuck those people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look over here. <laughs> and on October 21st, more called Crime Stoppers from prison. What? <laughs> Identifying himself as Christopher Parker. Oh. He told Crime Stoppers that he knew Mark more well and oh. that he was a really, really nice guy and not the type of guy who would do this sort of thing. Wow. Quote, I could almost put my life on it that it's not him, unquote, he said. Wow. Uh, this this guy. This, this guy. guy. Wow. No, not like, like there's no chance they have caller ID uh, at the at Crime Stoppers, right? <laughs> not or that, that uh, the prison uh, phones are not being tapped. Nope, 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 nope. This is, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. Watch this. <laughs> so in November of 2011, 30-year-old Tassandra White was arrested, accused of assisting more in misleading police, hiding evidence, and threatening witnesses. She was charged with obstructing a peace officer, conspiracy, accessory after the fact to murder, and threatening death. 
<laughs> so now we're going to get into the trial. What do you got, Beth? On April 30th, 2013, on the morning when they were supposed to appear in court to set a date for the robbery trial, Moore and co-accused Kevin Williams were put together in a cell. Nope. <laughs> the two former friends had been ordered by the court not to have any contact with each other, but here they were placed in the same cell together. So, uh, you know what happened. Williams was taken out of the building on a stretcher. So, um, and I, I wish we, I, we knew more about the jail system in Canada, and I don't. But in the United this States... This was not supposed to happen. This yeah. shouldn't have happened, but I wonder if the, if the guards were, like, in on it, right? It's possible, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, on March 26, 2014, Moore was sentenced to 12 years for the Arex Jewelers robbery. Kevin Williams was given a reduced sentence of 10 years for testifying against Moore. On Friday, March 6, 2015, after his murder trial had begun, Moore refused to continue to come to court, accusing the presiding judge, Superior Court Justice Michael Dambro, of bias. Moore objected to the murder charges being tied together in one trial as opposed to separately. After Moore attempted to address the jury directly, Judge Dambro ordered the jury out and Moore to stop. Shut up! <laughs> when I could only imagine what that scene was like. Uh, he's like rapping, like, listen to me rap. Listen to my lyrics. Here's how my story. You know, I don't know. Uh, it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Uh, so when Morris said he would continue to attempt to address the jury, the trial continued without him present until he chose to return. Moore returned the following Monday, uh, looking like a casually dressed businessman in a black suit, jacket, and wire rim glasses. Williams was called as a witness during Moore's trial. On the witness stand, Williams apologized to the jury for gaps in memory caused by head trauma, but was cut off before he could implicate Moore in the injury. Jurors were not to be told details about that beating. Man, sometimes it's wild to me what the courts will allow a jury to hear and and not, because we want to know everything, right? So we can make (laughs) the best decision. Yeah. Um, But sometimes it's it just doesn't happen that way. So Williams testified that he was in the car with Moore on September 29th, 2010, and watched him gun down Facey and James for no apparent reason. Cell phone records placed both men in the area at the time of the shooting. Williams said Moore told him, quote, angel of death, end quote, made him do it. Uh, Williams also testified that he was upset that Moore had done the shooting on the night of his of his birthday. And that reminds me of a Drake song. I'm upset. I'm upset. He uh it's it's a lyric of his anyway. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm upset. <laughs> I was just thinking that's a weird thing to be upset about. Not that he killed people, but that he killed people on his birthday. <laughs> yeah, what's up with this man and his in his brain? <laughs> we don't know enough about his early life, I guess, to um but I guess, you know, trauma rewiring yeah, of the yeah. brain synapses. So the tape of the phone call to Crime Stoppers was played in court. In it, Moore claimed that two guys named Slinky and Reds committed the no. murders. <laughs> No. They also played tapes of his conversations with his girlfriend, Cassandra White, and his mother. Oh, my God. This this, <laughs> this story <guy>. is 
Oh, amazing. So the prosecution or, quote, the crown, as they as they say in Canada, Canada is part of the British Commonwealth, uh, Meghan Markle. Anyway, during this trial, the crown argued Moore committed the murders to further his rap career and to prove he was a genuine gangster by living the violence in his lyrics. Three or four victims were complete strangers to him. The Crown also alleged that Moore hated the Greenbrae area neighborhood in Scarborough and that he also hated the Weston Road area because that's where he'd been shot in the face at 17. We don't know if this is true. That's just what they alleged. Yeah, we were sitting in our hotel room at CrimeCon watching um, the Casey Anthony recreation uh, with... uh, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't don't remember. I don't know who played Casey Anthony, but she was pretty good. She was pretty good. But it was just really, it's always interesting to me how the prosecution has to come up with they they put pieces together and fabricate a story or come up with... Well, they with... have to come up with a motive. That they don't actually need a motive, but jurors like to hear a motive. They want to know what the motive is. Yeah. Well, I've never been on a jury. I want to so bad. Uh, <laughs> I wish you could apply or put your name in a hat. You can't. Uh, and I just wait by the mailbox and they'd never call me. Um, but anyway, the Crown said uh, that the that Moore sold his 9mm gun in late 2010. It was recovered in 2012 in an unrelated police raid. The 45 has never been found. The Crown alleged Moore used the guns before and after the murders to shoot up the home of a woman who owned owed him money to fire at the wall of a school building. No. And let off several shots at a nightclub. We talked about this. Uh, yeah. The ballistics matched. During the trial, Moore was linked to the crime scenes via the nine millimeter gun. He was also linked by DNA through spit that was found at one of the scenes. Mm. The defense argued there is no way to prove Moore was in possession of the guns throughout the 75 day period and that it would make little sense to knowingly keep a gun, quote, with a body on it, unquote, which is a really weird way to say that. Yeah, it is. But I mean, that's how, that's how, (laughs) for lack of a better word, that's how they talk. Uh, That's how the streets talk, right? Right. Toronto Toronto certainly has its own slang, but, um, you know, people's body counts or, um, you know, uh, I can't think of, I can't think of anything, but it's, it's just part of the vernacular. Yeah, I understand that part. It's like using that in court seems really weird. It does. But we've talked about this before about um, African-American vernacular English and uh, the fact that the crown, the judge and the court reporters don't understand it. And so when they're taking down these people's testimony with the body on, it does sound weird to say in court, but it doesn't sound weird to the person who's testifying. No, but um, it was his defense that was saying that. So his attorney uh, said that. Yeah, that's what my understanding was. That's what I think is weird. Okay, you know what? Let me shut the fuck up and just read (laughs) what is on the script. Here I am trying to create nuance and context and doesn't even make any sense. No, it would make sense. (laughs) It would make sense if the if the crown said it. Yeah, because, you know, it is slang. And so they they want to put him in a a bad light. Mm -hmm. But for the defense to say it, I mean, 
let's pretend uh, the jury is all white because they probably were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, using but it that kind of Toronto. It's Toronto. It's so Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they. Uh, but um, I don't know. It just seems like it would put him in a bad light to use slang in a murder trial. <laughs> I don't I, know. Yeah, uh, y- yeah. And you know what? When we get to the takeaways. I got you. So during, where are we? Hyacinth Moore sat in the back of the courtroom during much of Moore's trial, keeping distance from families of the victims. On at least one occasion, she railed at reporters for acting, she claimed, as tools of the crown, never giving her son the benefit of, quote, innocent until proven guilty. At the end of the trial, the jury listened to most of Moore's debut rap album, Election Year, released under the name Prezi, which the crown alleges contains references to the murder in the lyrics. Um, I'm going to read the lyrics, but this is a really disgusting thing that um, America, United States does this and Canada does it too. They use the art, uh, the right. lyrics of black and brown artists um, against them in, in trials of criminality. But like, it doesn't happen on the other side. It's not true for, for white people who might right. be guilty of crimes. Yeah. Um, and and uh, that's kind of what I was saying about the... Uh, slang that they were using earlier right right i now i get it thank you beth (laughs) so uh here's here's some of his his lyrics quote this is nothing ain't no fiction this is what it really is end quote more raps in the track quote on my grind which he mouthed the words along to it as it played in court Wow, this really slaps, right, jurors? Uh, so, so quote, uh, load the clip and spray like Lysol. You don't really want to run with this with the kid no more. Uh, fucking niggas up at the corner store. Die like Andre. Wait, didn't he kill somebody that's named his, Andre? No, that's his brother. Oh, okay. Die like Andre. Okay, his brother got killed though. Yeah. Right. Okay. His brother died. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he says in the track, turn it up. Well, okay. Okay. (laughs) The Crown argued this refers to the shooting of Facey and James by a corner store in Scarborough, similar to when Moore's older brother, Andre, was shot dead in 2008. Moore also raps about both a nine millimeter gun and a 45, which has a golden trim and fires bullets with a red center, just like the one used in the Cole murder, the Crown argued. That sounds so fancy. It so does. fancy that you wouldn't want to like mess it up, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, l- you don't want to l- use I it just, to kill people. With. I'm just gonna put it in a nice little case <laughs> so people can see. Look at it's got gold trim and fires bullets with a red center. Look at these red bullets, beautiful. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it just seems like uh, just destroying a, a beautiful piece of uh, I don't know craftsmanship. On Saturday, May 30th, 2015, the jury returned at 5.40 p.m., having begun deliberations early the previous Thursday morning. Mark Moore showed no emotion as a Toronto jury foreman said Moore had been found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. Moore, who had been very vocal in his objections with the presiding judge early on in the trial, stood silently in his white blazer and black trousers as the foreman quickly went through the four guilty findings. Then Moore sat down with his elbow on one knee, holding holding his forehead in his right hand. 
He scratched his chin, looked up at the ceiling and said nothing. Life without parole in this case was automatic. Police described Moore as a serial killer and said they couldn't remember the last time someone was charged with four homicides in the city. Moore was sentenced to life in prison in 2015. In 2016, Moore was sentenced to an additional six years for the courthouse beating of Kevin Williams. So now we're going to get into where are they now? What do you got, Beth? Well, he's online via Canadian Inmate Connect. Ooh, bow chicka wow wow. <laughs> His profile says that he is six foot one with a Burberry complexion, which Ooh. I don't know what that means. I mean, Burberry is like a fancy brand, fancy uh, pattern. Um, I don't know. His skin, his skin is a nice brown. Okay, okay. He is in New Haven Maximum Security near Kingston. He says life is hard behind bars and he is looking for connection with the outside world. He says he gets lots of interest from women and he still maintains his innocence. Um, okay, we sainted you though. <laughs> I mean, uh, surveillance footage was involved in this one, too, right? I I recall in the story. Yeah, in the robbery. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So William's decision to testify against Moore got him ostracized by his community for being a snitch. And after his release, he left the Toronto area. In October of 2013, the Crown withdrew the charge of accessory after the fact to murder against Hyacinth Moore. In 2015, Tassandra White was found guilty of accessory to murder after the fact in connection to Jamil Spence's murder. That's interesting why the charges against his mother stuck Were did not stick yeah. but the ones against well she she was more involved she, i guess in yeah, the crimes well they, they had all of those tapes where they were discussing right the car and all that so right they, they okay. probably didn't have enough evidence against his mom mm-hmm. but they did against his girlfriend so i also think sometimes they use that charge we're going to charge you with accessory after the fact right. to try to get try to people turn to turn them yeah 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 um so yeah you're right maybe they just didn't have enough. Uh, quote, I think it was a miscarriage of judgment or, or justice, her conviction, end quote. White's lawyer, Marcus Bornfreund, said, quote, in my opinion, the jury was so unrepresentative of Ms. White in terms of being a jury of her peers. She might as well have been from another planet, end quote. There were no black jurors on the predominantly white jury who spent two hours deliberating. Now, that is a big problem when it comes yeah. to justice. Yeah, that doesn't sound right. Mm -mm. In 2017, the documentary Some Sort of Judas aired on TVO in Canada. It explores gun and gang culture while referencing the killing spree perpetrated by Mark Moore. The focus is on Kevin Williams. And uh, I tried really hard to find a way to watch it, but uh, you can only view it in Canada. And I'm sure there's ways you can get around that, but uh, I don't do those things. So (laughs) I couldn't watch it. Shoot. I was going to say we should have had many our a Fruit Loops correspondent in yeah. Canada. Watch it for us and report back. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That that's a good idea. God damn it! Wait for real? That? Yeah, you like my idea. I, oh, yes, man. that's a good idea. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Oh, next time, next time there's yeah. Canada only content. We will enlist her <laughs> we'll services. Enlist Minnie, yeah, we'll buy her a it. coffee. Uh, so- <laughs> 
<laughs> and give her an extra tune. So um, gun violence is still prevalent across the greater Toronto area and remains a particular problem affecting Toronto rappers. Countless young, talented lives have been cut short, including well-known artists. And this, I mean, this is, uh, it's, a, it's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. yeah. In 2020, the song Wish I Could was released, which features an all-star lineup, including Maestro, Fresh Wes, Roni, Jellystone, Turk, Bizlock, JD Era, JRDN, and Dub J. It conveys a unified message of anti-gun violence. That's wonderful. Yeah. JD Era believes that many Toronto artists are idolizing gang activity and that it results in escalated gun violence. Um, but there's a, there's a reason for it. So, quote, rap is starting to change and gun violence is not just a problem in rap. It's a problem in the entire city. He says, quote, you can be a gangster and a rapper. If music is really what you love, let it be your passion and separate yourself from that activity and stay focused. Um, so now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think made Mark snap. What do you got, Beth? Well, I think he grew up surrounded by poverty, crime, and violence, and it it wasn't a lifestyle. It was just life as he knew it. Mm -hmm. It's just how it was. The rap scene also emulates that. Not not all of the rap scene, but Mm -hmm. a a wide faction of it. Um, And I found it interesting and not something I had ever thought about before, how the Canadian stereotype of nice people in toques looking at moose. (laughs) What the toque? (laughs) They're Oh, <laughs> that's what they call like beanies. They're oh. called toques. Oh, okay. Got you, got you, got you. Okay. <laughs> Basically a benign, pleasant stereotype uh, might push Canadian rappers to become harder in order to prove themselves. And that, that may have been a factor here. And mm-hmm. uh, just him trying to make it as a rapper, wanting to have an image that was as gangster as possible. Um, he didn't kill these people because of a gang turf war, which... A lot of um, the earlier stories with the uh, gangster rappers, it was turf war or something like that. It it wasn't like that. He yeah, was there just, was no escalation no, or conflict. It was no. just bang. It was just killing people and I guess to get street cred. Yeah. Um, and that's fucked up and sad. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't any other point to it or or any point to the murders, really. Yeah, and that's, I think, uh, the most baffling part. Uh, Cardi B and her husband have a song, Do Anything for Clout. And this is a perfect example of that, doing anything for clout. And mm-hmm. in poor and BIPOC communities, um, clout is your ticket out, out of that cycle of poverty um, and crime. Um, And usually the ones who are able to make it out are the ones who can perform the best, right? The ones for the dominant culture, for white society. That's the basketball players, the football players, the singers, the rappers, the actors, you know, the reality show stars. Uh, And there's a price um, that is paid once, once you are, once to to get there. Um, Canada in general, I think is a more, uh, has more of a safety net as far as uh, its citizens go. Like y'all got checks during the pandemic, during the pandejo, uh, right? For um, universal basic income, free health care, that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, there are um, issues with sy- systemic racism and white supremacy, which cause harm to these communities, right. which, you know, uh, a 17 year old kid shouldn't have to live in a place where he gets shot in the face right. by AK-47. Yeah, right. That's, that's right. horrific. A mother yeah. shouldn't have uh, nearly all of her children 
touched by or taken from her by the criminal justice system and violence in the community, right? And she, she probably people don't live in these communicate in these communities because oh, I'm so excited to live yeah. in a community of crime, this right? This is awesome. I can't wait. Yeah. Right. It's it's a matter of survival. Right. There might not have been another place that was affordable for this woman, Moore's mom, to raise her children. Um, And I think that, uh, again, I said he had a long rap sheet. Twenty five convictions is a lot. But uh, usually crimes of like robbery and, and that kind of thing are crimes of survival. People are trying to eat. People are hungry, trying to survive. Um, and I think um, also the thing, that, one of the things that bothers me about this case is using his rap lyrics to punish him or as some sort of mo- motive when it, it usually is just art. In this case, it might not have been just art, but usually, but most of the time it's just people writing their experiences or from their heart or using their imaginations. And yeah. the justice system does use tend to use it against black and brown men mostly. Right, right. It just made me think of... Um... Have you watched uh, this? I can't remember the documentary. It's like a four-parter or something about Elisa Lam. No, I don't think no. I know who that is. Uh, she was the the Asian woman who went, was staying at the uh, Hotel Cecil. Yes, yeah. And she the, with the elevator, and they found her in the water tank. Yeah, I take it back. Yeah, I watched it. <laughs> so there was a guy in that. Uh, he he was like a, uh, I don't know, some kind of metal death metal or something like that. He was an oh, artist. Yes, I recall. And I was and... really surprised. This blew me away. Oh, I was like a white guy. Think, think. Yeah, white yeah. Guy in so they, so all these people came at him because they thought for some reason that he killed her just because he had stayed at the Cecil Hotel mm-hmm. and uh, he was weird. Yeah. And they basically ruined his life. Yeah. And yeah. It, that's just kind of what it made me think of, like using your art against you yeah to, i mean in in this case this guy was pretty. this guy up. was pretty but, fucked up. <laughs> right but, that but is in a something... lot of cases like the the artists are talking about things that they really don't you know it might be a fantasy but it's not something that they're actually doing you know right yeah and since when is art a crime like nobody's down here arresting stephen king for having those kids in the it movie have sex right. with each other or yeah. you know like uh art is is amazing and and uh it's it's our society wouldn't function without it and to criminalize it is uh it's a it's a damn shame but uh this guy was a piece of basura so uh (laughs) put him under the jail yeah yeah Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're gonna get. You're gonna hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing four one one, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. 
So, if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. All right. Well, uh, here is a tip that we received um, from uh, Cherry Jello 3 on Instagram. And she shared a or I'm not sure what, her, what their pronouns are. So I'm just going to say they shared a video on IG with some real fire tips from this dude called DW Self-Defense. He's a TikToker. And um, he, he, he said three very simple tips. Never, ever go to a second location. And one thing that I thought I'd never considered is he's he painted. What if what if somebody puts a knife at your back and you're about to go into your house? Even going to your house is a second location at that point. So don't do it. Yeah, I never um, thought of that. I hadn't either. I was like, damn, because oh, it's my house, right? It's my right, domain. Right. I'm the boss. But it's, but, but, but it's inside. It's yeah. inside private, right? Where they right. can do whatever they want to you. Yeah. Um, another thing to remember is they are always lying. They're big, fat <laughs> mentirosos. They're yeah, big, you fat can't liars. Trust them. Yeah. He, he said every murderer, every rapist, every thief throughout the history of time has lied and said some shit like, do what I say and I won't hurt you. Bullshit. Of course yeah. they're going to hurt you. And then right. lastly, he said, fight like hell. You got to give yourself a fighting chance. Hit kick scream scratch their eyes out um uh soft spaces if if it's for breathing or for breeding get it uh and uh, and and he said there is a chance you could get hurt but if they wanted to kill you they would have done it right then and there at right, least this right. way you have a fighting chance to get away and i was i tips ooh, yeah he got me together in one minute and 30 seconds i am wow. a chance person That's and amazing. i wanted to share yeah. with y'all so <laughs> dw have... self-defense on yes. tiktok uh-huh. okay uh-huh. Cool, cool, cool all right well now let's move on over to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by or about any marginalized or othered groups and uh, any true crime goodies i am going to shout out two things that i believe are must watches they are blind spot the uh t the, it was a movie that we've shouted out before and they've turned it into a tv show about um living in the bay area the criminal justice system davi diggs from hamilton is involved rafael casal um if things don't work out with old whitey Raphael, you know what to find me <laughs> so what, where can you watch this blind you can wind blind spot blind spotting is on stars and it is just okay. so good also in the heights have you seen it yet i haven't but i want to yeah it, it is really really good i of uh, course uh, it is it's it's amazing yeah uh, it's, it's been getting Lynn manuel miranda our favorite our yeah. favorite you know why you know the vibes over here um it's really really great and um, as a Caribbean person with Afro-Latinx roots, I saw, I recognized a lot of the, the things, even though I'm not from New York, right? Part of right, this, right. this experience is, is um, global, but um, it has been getting a lot of criticism about not having enough black, um, dark, not dark-skinned Latinx okay. people. Nonetheless, it is really good. It's a good, it's just good watch. Fun, music, dancing, people. Mm. 
Love yeah. it. What I do you got? See that. So yes, watch it, watch it. Okay. So um, I wanted to shout out Relative Unknown podcast. A banger. Yeah. Love it. We learned about this podcast while we were at CrimeCon uh, and on Podcast Row, mm-hmm. uh, we met Jackie Taylor, who, yeah. and this is her story. Yes. It yes. starts out about her dad, who is in the Hells Angels, and then the whole family got put into the Witness Protection Program. And the story leads into her life in the program and what happened after, and it is absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. I wish yeah. there. I wish I knew more words, because fascinating, I feel like, doesn't do it justice. Justice, it's, yeah. It's it's more than that. It's just yes. fascinating, amazing. So, yes. Thank yeah, you. I, I binged the hell out of it. And then I was sad <laughs> when it was over. And I believe there is going to be more uh, because oh. she's she's made connections with other people yeah. who have been in the witness protection program. So, yeah, that's an aspect of true crime. I had no idea about Never until we met about. her. Yeah. yeah. Is that there's people whose family members commit horrible crimes and then witness people go into witness protection and. Um, like it's not all, um, you know, cupcakes and roses. It's not (laughs) great. Yeah. Your life is literally turned upside down in an instant by being in this program. Um, so anyway, uh, those are blind spotting in the Heights on HBO Max and Relative Unknown wherever you get your podcasts. Boy, this has been great, Beth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why don't you tell where the people can find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That is all true. And this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do. So you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to the Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. 
by the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.